From With Good Reason, I'm producer Matt Dara. When people who see me on TV and when I see, I say, whoa, like, this is crazy. Like, it was, it was a dream come true because I actually want to be an actor. It's so funny. <laughs> I actually want to be an actor a little bit. Like, I just think it's so cool. This is Yonta Vaughn. She's a second year on the University of Virginia women's basketball team. Yeah, I play point guard. I'm pretty short, sadly. (laughs) But no, I play point guard. I like to describe my game as a floor general. I like to pass first. I'm a pass first guard. Yonta is one of many college athletes who've taken advantage of NIL, a recent law that allows players to profit off their name, image, and likeness. I want to buy my mom. I want to eventually buy her a house and a car. My mom's a single parent, so I want to give back to her. She's been working so hard. Her NIL deal is with the Good Feet store. The deal requires her to attend promotional events and even star in her own TV commercial. When it's crunch time, I don't got time to be worried about my feet. I need to be ready. When I was spending with the Good Feet Arc Supports, it felt amazing. I was light on my toes. It's going to be a whole different speed in the game. With the Arc Supports, you can turn faster. And you don't even have to think about your feet. No matter how hard it is, you have to go through some type of adversity because that'll make you. I'm Yonta Ma, point guard at the University of Virginia. Go Hoos. Yonta says Jonathan Cotton, the owner of the Good Feet store, reached out to her to set up the NIL deal. He'd never actually seen her play, but liked what he saw on her social media. He said he looked through my Instagram page, you know, social media, Twitter and things and whatnot, and I had like blessed and gratitude and thankful in there. I'm, I'm, God is a big thing in my life. It is in his too. So that's how Jonathan saw me. Women's college basketball is currently raking in the NIL money. It trails only football and men's basketball in NIL deals. Now women are actually getting opportunities. Like, I feel like we do the same thing as them. I feel like we work just as hard. We put a lot of time, energy, and effort into playing. So it was pretty exciting to see that, you know, people are starting to recognize women's basketball more. As Yonta continues her college career, she wants to use NIL to build relationships and possibly land a deal with her favorite high-end car brand. I do have one NIL deal that I am hoping for, and that's the Mercedes-Benz. That's my dream car, like. (laughs) But, you know, I just hope to focus on the basketball so that NIL can come. I'm Matt Dara. From Virginia Humanities, this is With Good Reason. I'm Sarah McConnell. Today, a new era of college athletics. And later, many elite athletes have had their careers ruined for using banned substances. Is it worth it? But first, NIL opened up a world of opportunity for student athletes when it was signed into law in 2021, but there weren't any guardrails to help them navigate the new landscape. Enter Kim Whitler. She co-wrote Athlete Brands, How to Benefit from Your Name, Image, and Likeness, Kim is the Frank M. Sands Senior Associate Professor of Business at the University of Virginia Darden School of Business. Kim, you were a student athlete. Do you wish NIL had been a thing back when you were playing? <laughs> well, the reality is I probably would not have made money. I was a, a collegiate golfer at the U.S. Air Force Academy. So I was in what I would call a low profile sport and I was, you know, a low profile athlete. I think there are still a lot of potential issues with NIL from an uneven playing field to potential locker room culture issues. My biggest worry is distraction that can actually derail players from achieving their goals and potentially even things like team performance. It could it could negatively impact it. I totally agree with you. And I want to get into a lot of those difficult questions. Let me start with the handbook you co-authored. It's called Athlete Brands, How to Benefit from Your Name, Image, and Likeness. Why worry about whether you are a brand or have a brand? What is a brand of a student athlete? Ah, so the reality is we all have brands. What is a brand? A short way of thinking about this is it's your reputation. So if I asked you to describe Ty Jerome who was a point guard on UVA's national championship basketball team. He now plays for the Cleveland Cavaliers pro basketball. If I asked any fan to describe Ty, some of the things that would come to mind would be he's a winner. He doesn't have the best natural athletic ability, but he's this gritty New York, never say never, 
fight till the end. That's his brand. He has one, whether he's purposeful about building it or not. We all have brands and that's the reputation that we have earned. How do we earn that reputation? It's by what we do and say. So in your book about athlete brands, where you're advising students on how to build their brand and how to navigate this crazy world, what do you say about how much time it takes and skill it takes to find the people who are going to financially invest in you? That's a great point. And, you know, brand building is conceptually similar, whether you're building Tide, Nike, or a celebrity brand or an athlete brand. And one of the things after you figure out what you want your brand to be, you have to figure out how you're going to allocate your resources. And so in the book, we have the students go through a series of exercises. What are your goals? What do you want to accomplish? What is your brand? How do you want to allocate your resources, your most precious as a college athlete being your time? How do you allocate your time to sleep, to personal, to academics and athletics? Then we introduce NIL. Now we ask the same question. How much time do you want to invest in NIL and where will you take it from? What we're doing is we're inviting the students to be choiceful about how they allocate their time. It's gotta come from something. And once you ask the students to make that decision, where does the time come from? What ends up happening is they actually invest a little bit less time in NIL it doesn't get out of control because they're now more cognizant of the fact that it's coming from their sport or it's coming from their academics or from sleep. What does that mean, investing time in NIL? Can a good star student athlete, let's say, get approached by a company who wants to pay them to do a big commercial, a Nike ad, some other kind of ad, and that's it? So this is going to vary right? It varies by the student athlete, by the strength of who they, you know, their brand. It varies by the school, the brand, right? So if you're in basketball and you're at UNC Duke or you're at Illinois State or you're at Creighton, you know, the value of the athletes at these different schools is going to vary. And and then the nature of, of the agreements can vary. So while at one school, perhaps a player has to do almost nothing to earn the money, i.e. you have a very rich donor who's going to essentially pay them to show up one time for some sort of a promotional event. Or at another school, maybe you get paid $3,000 every time you show up for a promotional event. You can imagine then that the amount of time that you would have to invest at that second school is quite different than at the first school. How important is it for the student athletes to actually have big social media followings? The more they have, the better the likelihood of a deal? Oh my gosh, that's such a great question. So I ended up doing research and what I found is that we looked at the top 100 brands in the US and we went and found the the student athletes that they sponsored. Almost 40% of the athletes sponsored by those top 100 brands had less than 25,000 followers. See, the big brands don't need the students to have big followership. They want the students to have really powerful, compelling, positive brands that the big brands like Gatorade and Coke and Pepsi can borrow equity from. How are companies finding the students that they want to make deals with? You know, that's that's an interesting question. I just wrote a case on Jonathan Cotton, who's the CEO of the largest franchise for Good Feet. Let me share with you Jonathan's approach. He started by saying, what school is unimpeachable? Like, he, first, I've got to pick a school that has a good brand. I'm not going to go work with a school that has had a lot of ethical violations. Next, what coach is unimpeachable? What coach has the character that I would want my brand, The Good Feet, to align with, right? And of course, he goes to UVA. He goes to Tony Bennett, coach of the UVA men's basketball team. And he said when he gets those two things right, then he knows generally the players are all going to be good play, you know, good people. He's looking for character. He's looking for people, you know, student athletes who are highly respected, And so then the third thing that he looks at is the individual players. What do they stand for? What do they post on social media? 
how do they represent the school? How do they represent the team? How do they represent themselves? And is that a good fit with a good feed brand? So, so the process is one where you're really trying to look at what the student athletes stand for. And a lot of times they're almost ignoring the size of the followers. They're looking at what you're posting, who you are, what you stand for, and that matters a lot more. I get that the biggest stars, like the LSU gymnasts, right, can make millions and millions. But for the average good athlete at a medium-sized school, what could they make easily? Are we talking hundreds or thousands? That's just very difficult to say. What type of sport are they in? What type of school? Is a school a football school, a basketball school, not good at athletics? Is it a D1, a D2? So interestingly, if you look at the top schools and the top revenue sports like football and basketball, you know, those top players are more than likely going to make money. When you start getting down into mid-level schools, what's interesting is, in my analysis, is that oftentimes those mid-level schools might be where you find some of the higher paid female athletes. So what I'm essentially saying is that the men tend to, to go down the traditional path of big brand name school, big brand name sport, and the women are coming from a, from a, a, a more a greater range of school types and sport types. So let's say I am a, a good athlete and I'm looking at my college choices and my parents are highly motivated for me athletically, but also need me to try to get good NIL deals if I can get them to defray my expenses. Um, who's going to help me, right? How do I know where to find NIL deals and which schools will help me with them? Well, again, you know, there are legal requirements about what schools can and can't do. But let me share a story of Skylar Dahl. Skylar Dahl is a UVA women's rower from the very beginning of NIL, very committed to it. She comes from a family of marketers. She personally likes marketing. But as you can imagine, rowing is not kind of a high-profile pro sport, and she was not in the in one of the lead boats. So you look at this and go, well, this is probably a low likelihood of being able to generate NIL deals. Well, Skylar went out and did a lot of work herself. She connected with people on LinkedIn. She used her network. She's now been able to convert some of those conversations into NIL deals. I'm not privy to the amount, but I would imagine that they're on the lower level, but they're not, look, to a college kid making $10,000 a year is not trivial. And so there's an example of somebody who's making it happen, but she's having to go out, try to reach out to potential sponsors, connect with them. She had to package her story in a way that was compelling. She has to explain how who she is could benefit a company like the Goodfeed. But she's doing the work herself. The school doesn't do that for her. How do you think we got here in the first place? I know it was decided that, hey, it's not fair that athletes do all this work and schools get all the financial benefit. But did something go wrong also? I am so glad you asked that question because, you know, I teach marketing. And marketing is about a value exchange. It's about you create value for others and you get value back. I actually really believe that schools and the NCAA failed to adequately capture prior to NIL the value that universities were creating for student athletes. So let me explain. If you go back in time prior to NIL, what you kept hearing is, gosh, the school's only generating a free education for the athletes. Maybe that's worth $100,000, 200000 assuming that the athletes graduate, which many don't, and yet the athletes are generating millions of dollars for the schools. That's unfair. Let me talk about that value equation differently. Let's think about a player like Ty Jerome. Ty Jerome played, on, like I mentioned, on the UVA men's basketball team, the national championship team. What does he get for coming to UVA? First of all, What's the value of a Tony Bennett's time? Tony Bennett's spending 
his annual salary essentially investing and developing roughly 13 players. So take his annual salary, divide it by 13, and, and that tells you the value of the investment of the school in a world-class coach like Tony. Now take the whole staff. How about a world-class strength and conditioning coach like Mike Curtis? What is the value of world-class practice facilities? How about the free food? How about nutritional support? How about now the education and tutors? How much is all of that worth? Now let's think about all the media exposure. What is the value of the media exposure that UVA provides a Ty Jerome? I don't know. I'm guessing over the three years he played here, potentially over $100 million. You add all this up, the value of him coming to UVA was that it created a platform, coaching experiences, playing opportunities that got him to the NBA. He now has a five-year value of his contracts is worth about $13 million. So we, we misestimated from the very beginning the value the schools were creating for these athletes. Kim Whitler is the Frank M. Sands Senior Associate Professor of Business at the University of Virginia. She's also co-author of Athlete Brands, How to Benefit from Your Name, Image, and Likeness. In 2020, Shikari Richardson was barred from representing Team USA at the Tokyo Olympics because she tested positive for marijuana. My next guest says there are many other elite athletes like Richardson who've had their reputations tarnished for taking banned substances that have little to no evidence of enhancing performance. Joe Morrison is a professor of exercise at Longwood University. Joe, for much of your career, you taught that doping, using performance-enhancing drugs was dangerous. But now you say that's not necessarily true. Tell me about why you believed it initially and what your evolution has been. Well, I'm a, a bit of a sports junkie and a, a bit of a science junkie, and I'm also an exercise physiologist. And so for years and years and years, I was teaching that these drugs are performance enhancing and that they are dangerous. And finally, I decided that I wanted to go into the beginnings of that story and have a look at the real science. What had motivated you? It wasn't a specific case. It was more seeing these athletes get banned and, and their lives in ruins just in tatters after being banned and trying to figure out, okay, well, there's got to be some good solid science behind this. There's got to be something that's truly bad about this. And when you actually go back and try and find the science and you examine the science, it falls apart really, really quickly. It still bothers me. Still, I still sometimes sit there and think, this can't be right. Everything I was told was that it's dangerous, that you're enhancing your performance, and I'm just not finding that evidence. Give me an example of you having a moment where early on it started to fall apart and you thought, what? So EPO, erythropoietin, which is the drug of choice for professional cyclists, one of the ones that Lance Armstrong took during his time. It's a drug that increases red cell production. So these are the cells that carry oxygen around the body, really important for aerobic performance, endurance type performances like marathon running or stage cycling, long distance road cycling. But this group out of the Netherlands did a double blind placebo controlled study with really highly trained cyclists. They gave them EPO, they increased their hematocrit, which is a percentage of red blood cells in the body, right up to the limit that is allowed in cycling. And then they ran them through a bunch of tests. And one of those tests was a race up the Ventu, which is this massive moonscape of a mountain in France. It's this iconic cycling mountain. And the really interesting result from that study was nothing. The groups were pretty much identical in their performance on the road. And then that led me down the road of, well, what if all these drugs that Lance Armstrong took actually did nothing? And we saw how his life kind of fell apart. Did he really deserve all of that if these drugs 
really aren't doing a lot in an athlete that is that well-trained. So there's so many things here. One is, are they performance-enhancing? And two is, are they harmful to the people taking them? And therefore, other elite athletes aren't taking them because they're damaging, but they're at a disadvantage. What it takes to get a substance on the prohibited list, it needs to meet two out of three criteria. One other criteria is performance enhancing or potentially performance enhancing, harmful to health or potentially harmful to health, or violating the spirit of sport. And the kicker here is that WADA doesn't tell us which of the two criteria are being fulfilled to put the substance on the list. So something could be performance enhancing or potentially performance enhancing, and then they use the spirit of sport as their other criteria. Or it could be harmful or potentially harmful, and then they use the spirit of sport. But we don't know. And the reality is that a lot of the substances that are on the list have been approved for human use anyway. They're approved in clinical populations. They have well-established side effect profiles. They have established prescription guidelines. There's a database of adverse events. And they're not harmful in a clinical population. And when you look at the data of the prevalence of athletes taking drugs, taking banned substances, and whether there is a higher rate of morbidity and mortality, the data just don't line up. When do you think this whole idea of banning performance-enhancing drugs or banning any drugs really caught fire? Was there a time when it just wasn't a problem? The modern Olympics started in 1896. And at that time, heroin, opium, those kinds of drugs were regularly used. The winner of the 1904 marathon, the Olympic marathon, Thomas Hicks, was helped across the line by his team. And he was also given alcohol and strychnine. As a celebratory thing? No, it was to help him get across the line because it was thought that those drugs were good for him. They were health tonics. Really, the sea change came with the 1960 Olympics, which were held in Rome. And on the opening day of the Olympics, this cyclist, Nud Jensen, was in the team time trial. And it was a really, really hot day. And he fell off his bike. And this was at a time where they didn't really understand thermoregulation or heat stress or fluids and hydration. He rode to the end of the course and they put him in a medical tent, which in a hot environment is going to be even hotter. And he died. And his death was attributed to amphetamines. And that kind of started this whole drugs are bad, drugs are bad, drugs are dangerous. He wasn't actually taking amphetamines. Um, There's no evidence of that. His trainer gave him other drugs, but not amphetamines. In the late 1960s, 1967, Tommy Simpson, who was one of the best cyclists at the time, a British cyclist, he was riding the Tour de France. And again, it's July, it's really hot, and they're riding up the Ventoux, this massive mountain in France that looks like a moonscape. It's rocky, it's barren, and he has had stomach problems. He is taking amphetamines because that's what they took at the time, and it's a really hot day. And Tommy Simpson fell off his bike and ended up dying on the side of the road. And so these two really high-profile deaths in European cycling led the charge towards developing this anti-doping message. Have many athletes had their careers ruined because they were found to be in violation of anti-doping rules? There have been a lot of high-profile athletes, we hear about them, but also lower-profile athletes who have ended their career because of anti-doping rules. Some examples, just a couple of years ago, Shakari Richardson, the US sprinter, she tested positive for marijuana. And the anti-doping policy works on this um, principle of strict liability, where if it is in your body, you are guilty. And she freely admitted she had consumed some marijuana after the race, and she was banned automatically. It was a shorter ban than some of the other bans that are out there, but she missed the Tokyo Olympics. So all of that work that she did was in vain for a substance that is not performance enhancing and is legal in Oregon. In the 2000s, Zach Lund, 
who was a US skeleton racer zipping down an ice tube on a rickety little luge-like object. He was taking finasteride, which is a male pattern baldness treatment. And every year he had checked the list and it hadn't been on the list. And the one year that he didn't check, it got put on the list and he tested positive. And he's he's trying to fight off male pattern baldness. And he gets a sanction. The US Anti-Doping Agency decided to strip him of his results from that period. WADA, the World Anti-Doping Agency, decided that that was not good enough. And so they took Zach Lund to the Court of Arbitration for Sport in Switzerland, which is like the Supreme Court for Sport. And they said, this guy admitted to doping, taking a banned substance, which he did, it was finasteride, and he deserves a longer suspension. And we want him banned for two years. The Court of Arbitration for Sport kind of went in the middle and said, well, there were some procedural irregularities here. We'll ban him for one year. As a result, he missed the Olympics. But here's the kicker. A couple of years after he tested positive, finasteride was actually removed from the prohibited list. So are you now thinking, hey, we should allow all manner of substances and drugs in competitive sport or we should have a list of banned substances be drastically reduced. I think we need more evidence. What banning has done in this narrative that this is a morally deviant behavior, that it is a character flaw, what it's done is it's driven the behavior underground and it can drive athletes or those who want to take substances because they think it'll enhance their performance towards more dangerous practices or more harmful practices is probably a better way to put it. And we've got this policy that has pretty far-reaching effects on athletes' lives. You know, these sanctions really, really can destroy their careers. If we have a policy that is so far-reaching and can do so much damage, shouldn't it be based on a solid foundation of evidence? And, and that solid foundation just isn't there, not when you start to scratch through the narrative that has been spun. Well, this is fascinating. Joe Morrison, thank you for sharing your insights with me and with good reason. Thank you for having me. Joe Morrison is a professor of exercise at Longwood University. This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back. Welcome back to With Good Reason from Virginia Humanities. For runners, there's nothing like the freedom of lacing up your shoes and putting foot to pavement, logging mile after mile in the open air. Sabrina Little combines her passion for running with her academic work in philosophy. She studies how running can hone virtues that are beneficial to life outside of sports. Sabrina is a professor of leadership studies in the Department of Leadership and American Studies at Christopher Newport University and author of the forthcoming book, The Examined Run. Sabrina, you're an accomplished long-distance trail runner and even an ultra-runner winning U.S. championship five times. What's an ultra runner? So technically an ultra marathon is any run that's longer than a marathon, but typically the shortest event will be 50 kilometers. And my specialization is the 100 mile and also the 24 hour run. Oh my God. How did you start ultra running? What was the first time for you? Yeah, it's an interesting question because when I started ultra running, I didn't know that it was a sport. My mom was in remission <laughs> from cancer. So I decided to run 100 miles as a fundraiser for the National Ovarian Cancer Coalition. So I just did 100 miles in my hometown. And the following day, it was published in the newspapers. And I was receiving messages that it was one of the fastest 100 mile times in the country that year. And I just thought, other people do these things? So I started 
looking up competitions and I ended up falling into sponsorship relationships. And since that time, I've been, I've been competing in the sport. What's it like to run 100 miles? What was the longest you'd run before that? Really only maybe 15 or 16 miles. So it was a lot of unknown. I started really, really too quickly for the distance. Um, and it was really painful, probably the final 30 or 40 miles. But there's a kind of curiosity that, you know, participating in these events kind of, it, it just grows, right? So you you wonder, can I master it? Can I get better? And the longer the event is, there's always more things that you can improve. What kind of pain are you talking about? What did you experience in the last, <laughs> I can't believe you're saying the last 30 or 40 miles when for most others, that's the first. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. I think it's it's not like a sharp kind of I'm injured pain. It's just sort of, it kind of feels like a dull toothache on your body. Like you, you're tired and your legs are achy, uh, but it's nothing that, stops you, right? Like at no moment did it overcome me or, or make me think that I couldn't finish. It was just something that I had to persist through, but I could persist through. That's so interesting because I think a lot of people would be in emotional distress, right? Like I could never do this. I can't go on. Yeah, I think that when you're running, your emotions shout at you instead of whisper. And so you very acutely feel what you feel. I mean, you feel lonely in a loud way. You feel tired. You feel cranky. Like all of those emotions become really sharp and in focus. And part of learning to grow in the sport is to just kind of quiet those emotions. Um, I heard this quotation one time that emotions can either cook your food or set your kitchen on fire. And so I try to use those emotions <laughs> productively in the context of competing. Have you really felt lonely running? I have. Yeah. A lot of these races, they take place in the middle of the forest and you could be out there for maybe 10, 15 miles without seeing anyone and it can get kind of lonely. I try to remind myself that, I mean, I'm an academic, so if I weren't running alone in the woods, I would probably be alone writing my papers. Uh, so I say it's kind of a lateral move, and loneliness is never the reason that I should stop. So you actually have a forthcoming book where you're combining your passion for running with your academic work and philosophy. The title is The Examined Run. It's going to come out from Oxford University Press where you're exploring how runners can develop virtues from their sport. I mean, running and practicing running is a virtue, right? Well, actually, I don't know. People often speak about athletics as though it's an unqualified good, that if you just sign up for um, an athletic team and, and you put in work that you're necessarily developing virtue, you're developing these kinds of excellences and becoming a better, more disciplined person. But if that were true, if all that it required for a good character were to be signed up for a sport, then I think in the highest levels, of athletics, we would expect to see just these bastions of virtue, right? The NFL and the NBA and world athletics. But that's not what we see. We see a much more textured picture of like athletes who are very perseverant and also like very disciplined and so forth, but also sometimes intemperance or envy or pride. And so I'm looking at athletic training and the kinds of habits of mind that we practice as we show up every day on a daily basis, like what is the internal kind of work that's taking place there and how does it fit in with the rest of our lives? Give me an example or two of exemplary people for you, people who've inspired you and made you think who are tremendous runners. Yeah. So there are so many, um, Ultramarathoning trail running is a is a world full of exemplars. I think one really extraordinary person is Courtney DeWalter, and she's one of the best runners in the world. She has course records in nearly every big race, and she just moves through the world with humility and has a humor about herself. She puts other people first, and I think those are it's a really special way of seeing someone be excellent to see that they're, they're striving and they're 
aspiration is not at odds with community, that she can be a loving member of the community and also be so excellent. And I think there are other people even outside of the sport who give me a vision for what I want to be inside of it. Like an example is my husband and he just has integrity in small things, like in the way that he answers emails and in the way that he just puts his best into everything that he does. And even though that's not specifically in the sport, like he shows me the way that I want to live my life as well. And I think recently someone who has been, I guess, become more salient in my imagination of the kind of runner that I want to be is my dad. I just have these memories of him as a kid. I would, you know, he would be heading out the door first thing in the morning to go for a run and I would want to come with him on my bicycle. And he never begrudged that. (laughs) He always invited me to come along. And now Uh being a parent and realizing how special it is that he gave up his his time for running like it gives me a vision of the kind of mom that I want to be like I could always get faster but I don't want to do so at the cost of spending time and being present with my girls and making them feel welcomed you've also written about something called productive suffering and I can only imagine what that is talk to me about productive suffering Right. Yeah. I think there's a kind of, there's an interesting rhetoric around pain and suffering in sport. I mean, sometimes we use phrases such as no pain, no gain, and pain is weakness leaving the body. And it makes pain out to be something that is necessarily a good. And I just don't think that's always the case. I mean, sometimes we suffer because we're imprudent and doing things that our bodies are not ready for. And sometimes we put ourselves through difficult workouts that are just too hard for the level that we're at. And so I just don't like that kind of lauding or praising of suffering for its own sake. I think it leads to a lot of poor stewardship of your body and you only get one body. So Part of raising the question of productive suffering is asking the question of what kinds of suffering are edifying, what kinds of suffering kind of position us to be better, right? Because there is discomfort in training, like that's ultimately how you improve. But I also want people to be cautious of injury, right? And and not celebrating that. What about competition, competitiveness, envy? All these things are are big in competitive sports. Are they also in running and even long-distance running, which you think of as more personal and solitary? Oh, for sure. Uh, Yes. Running is very competitive. And what's interesting is people often ask me whether I'm competitive. And I think it's an interesting question for a virtue ethicist and a runner Usually when people ask me if I'm competitive, what they mean is, am I undone by competition? Can I take losing? Does it eat me alive, right? If I can't win, these kinds of things. And strictly speaking, those are not competition. Competition just means striving together, striving in common toward the same end. What they're describing is actually envy, So envy is the vice of unhappy self-assertion. It is a kind of emotion that wants to correct an imbalance no matter how, right? So envy would be happy if the other person ceased to have the good thing, if you could take away their victory, right, to correct kind of the imbalance between you and them. And that's what I want to avoid. So there are ways of striving excellently and having a kind of edifying relationship, but what we should not be striving with is that kind of envy. Because envy can be a kind of theft. It just, it can't let the other person win. It can't celebrate the other person. And so you either you either win or, or no one wins. Do you have any advice for people interested in taking up running or people who've just started on that journey? Things you maybe wish you had known when you were starting out. Yeah, I think the best way to start running is to find a group of friends who also run. It's 
such a great opportunity for having friends and just building each other up through a kind of common practice. It can be a lonely road out there if you try to do it by yourself. And then the other piece of advice is just to be consistent. So it's better to just get out there every day and and just build something slowly than it is to have these kind of flash in the pan, big attempts to go for a long run or something. So find friends and be consistent. Sabrina Little is the author of The Examined Run. She is a professor of leadership studies in the Department of Leadership and American Studies at Christopher Newport University. Golf isn't a high-octane contact sport like basketball and football, but it's something you can play throughout your life and even into your later years. Karay Banks is the faculty athletics representative at Norfolk State University, and he's on a mission to generate funding to field both women's and men's golf teams at all HBCUs in the Mid-Eastern Athletic Conference. Karay, don't most HBCUs already field golf? There are some. We do not have a formal golf NCAA competing team. We do have students who play um, as part of a new golf program that we started. Uh, but our goal is to have a team that f- fully competes. What does it take to get one? Well, it takes a good deal of money, particularly in Power 5 institutions uh, operating at just under half a million dollars. The institutions that I have been focused on are the same kind and likeness. I've been doing so with approximately $150,000, $120,000 a year per program. Are there some HBCUs with some fantastic golf teams that are well-funded? Well, one of the programs that has received a lot of national acclaim for their funding is Howard University. They were able to secure some funding, particularly from Steph Curry from the Golden State Warriors. A chance relationship. He was sitting beside a young man on the team, and the young man was expressing the possible demise of the program because of funding. He took an interest, and the rest is history. North Carolina A&T has a golf program, and they happen to have a former NBA basketball player who's a member of the team. And so that has really propelled them. His his um, availability with the university, his membership on the team, as well as him playing and being their most staunch reporter. When you look at some of the other colleges mm-hmm. across the country, yeah. not HBCUs, yeah. that have— Superb golf teams yes. that are very highly funded. Yes. How much money are we talking about? Endowed scholarships, which mean that money never goes away. It's, it goes in perpetuity. But there are uh, some programs that I've seen where they have annual programs. They, they raise anywhere from one to two million dollars a year in just external donations and givings. But their endowment funds support them beyond a number that I can't really name. As a student, I attended both HBCU and PWI. Undergraduate, I went to Elizabeth City State University. That's in Elizabeth City, North Carolina. Uh, the Vikings. Graduate school, I went to Ball State University in Muncie, Indiana, the Cardinals. And of course, for my PhD, I went to Penn State University in the Lions. And what kind of funding differences did you see there? (laughs) (laughs) Well, if you were to speak to the administrators at each institution, they would each say one of our biggest challenges is money. The difference is at one institution, the biggest challenge is trying to get to a budget of $5 million, and the other one is managing a budget that, that approaches more like $320, $350 million. I read that you did get at Norfolk State University a million-dollar donation mm-hmm. for a golf simulator. What is that, and where did the money come from? Well, we we didn't see exactly the million dollar. You know, you have gifts that are in cash and gifts that are in kind. And so with the, the kind gift that we received, it was a donor from an alumnus who works in the industry and, as a result, provided to the university a golf simulator. It was a project that was planned over at least four semesters that I'm aware of that provided a golf simulator so that we can begin— the throws of a golf program. What is a golf simulator? Well, a golf simulator allows people to go into a room 
look at a screen, play stick in their hands, put the ball on a tee, and hit it. And, of course, that computer analyzes the speed, the swing, the height, the drive, and based on that, it determines where you would land on a, a golf course that is, uh, you know, 3D virtual reality uh, type set, almost like in a metaverse. Is there much interest by students in it? Yes, yes, yes. You know how things come together sometimes? We have been blessed that we have a group of about 15 students who are from the Detroit, Michigan area, and they all are members of a program called the Midnight Golfers Program. We don't have golf, but they came to the university because they were interested in the academics. I happened to learn that one of them, Erica Cummings, was a member of my program. I'm a STEM professor uh, by day, and Erica's one of my construction management engineering technology majors. And she says, oh, I play golf. I says, no kidding. She says, yeah, we we learned to play golf through the Midnight Golfers Program. Uh, Dr. Fluker started it. And when I came to the university, I said, you know, I'd love to play. If we had a team, we don't. So she said, you know, I'll see what I can do about it. From there, we went to her talking about golf. We have started a golf club. They are official organization now. And we have talked with them about being a part of our initial team once we are able to put all the pieces together, have a women's uh, golf program. You have said the impact would be revolutionary mm. if HBCUs in Norfolk State University's conference were able to fund men and women's golf teams and offer golf classics to students. Mm. Why? Why revolutionary? Well, let me—can I explain that a little, okay? So with my conference, I am at the faculty athletic representative of my institution. I am, have been on the executive council of my conference. And one of the things I was charged to do by the commissioner was to chair our strategic long and short-term plans. We did so, and one component of that was an identification of sports programs that we can start or we can expand. And one of those programs that, I mean, I just, I just jumped in both feet, was uh, golf. And that is because we have a fairly finite cost that we can start both a men and women's team at each institution. It helped us with equity and access for sports for both men and women. And we knew that if we were to start those programs, golf is just such, it is such an addition to one's life. And I say that because if we start golf at each of our institutions, we're talking about a sport that you can play well into your years as you get older. So it's not dependent upon how bad your knee is all the time because our primary market is African-Americans, but it's not exclusively African-Americans. We said this will be a great opportunity to introduce some students to a sport that they can compete on. And it allows for us to expand the awareness of, of the sport to other people. I said, you know, hey, everybody's already using golf as fundraisers already. So let's let's have teams. And we can also do so at a level that the institutions can support. We know that because we have seven teams now in our conference that are a combination of four women and three men. How do you think you'll get the money for it? My focus has been on corporate and large donors, and that is because that single donation from the right corporate entity or large donor can provide us with the seed money to start everything simultaneously. You know, I liken it to renting and a mortgage. Most people can afford a mortgage. It's the down payment that they struggle with. And many banks, they value and devalue their ability to loan to you based upon your down payment. So we're saying if we can get those large donors who invest into these students, invest into the goals of a program that we see, that we will be able to start this. And it's a great opportunity for a company. You're talking about being, investing one time into a program that allows you to have corporate sponsorship, corporate identity, branding from Delaware, where our northernmost school, Delaware State University, to South Carolina, our currently southernmost institution, South Carolina State University, and all of those points in between, Norfolk, Virginia, 
University of Maryland, Eastern Shore, Morgan State University, Coppin State University, Howard University, and North Carolina Central. How big a donation are you talking about? 20 million is a number that I know ensures that each university will have a men and women's team fully outfitted with a competitive team, not just a group of people golfing, but a truly competitive team. In our plan, we have charged each institution identifying PGA certified and licensed or LPGA certified and licensed instructors for those teams. We are talking about full complement for travel, for the, you know, the per diem and the strength coaching and the uh, nutrition and other experts, just like we do every other sport. And then lastly, the more academic side of it, we added as part of the charge is to ensure that each of the institutions have a golf course as part of their general education classes that they offer for the general population. One, expands the understanding and awareness of golf. Two, allows for students who have an interest to have an option And then three, it sets you up for having students for tryouts if you're going to have walk-ons to your team. That sounds fabulous. You are a proud Norfolk State Spartan. Yes, I am. Behold the green and gold. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. Carrie Banks, thank you for talking with me. Thank you so much, Sarah. I appreciate you and I appreciate the opportunity to talk about what we are doing good and right and just for so many talented students in the country. Coray Banks is the faculty athletics representative at Norfolk State University. With Good Reason is produced by Virginia Humanities, which acknowledges the Monica Nation the original people of the land and waters of our home in Charlottesville, Virginia. Our production team is Allison Quantz, Matt Darrow, Lauren Francis, and Jamal Milner. Aviva Casto is our intern. Special thanks to Jenny Taylor for booking assistance. For the podcast or to comment, go to withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.